0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hello, Shannon. How are you?
0: Well, I am tired. (laughs) It's only week one. (laughs) I mean, technically, it's it's week two, um, and I did a thing called the Death March a couple of times this week, and I'll just... I'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yes. There are some wonderful uh, things to see out there, but sometimes they're on pretty challenging topography.
0: <laughs> they are, and we've continued our rainy stint, too. Um, it's actually storming outside right now. Um, so we had to come in from the field early today. Um, the geophysicist as well, since they were doing magnetometers. Not a good thing to do when a storm's nearby. <laughs>
1: No, and in fact, uh, you're in the office right now at camp, and as we were getting ready to record, I heard some beeps and said, hey, somebody's shutting <laughs> off a TopCon.
0: <laughs> yes, and the whole office erupted because you're a big nerd that from across the room, <laughs> 10 states away, <laughs> you can tell what a TopCon GPS beep sounds like.
1: <laughs> you know, after you've worked with those things enough in the field, you just it's a sound you can hear in your sleep. <laughs> and that you just have nightmares about sometimes. Did I press record before I left for the field?
0: Oh, exactly. Um, so that is something that happened this week, too, is that the geophysicist showed up. So we have a um, geophysics camp that runs for three weeks, and it's actually field geophysics, which is kind of unique in terms of field camps. You don't really get that opportunity a lot. So they're here, as you could tell by the TopCon noise. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, I mean, are you surrounded, you know, by computers and all of this equipment now, as opposed to rock cameras and Jacob staffs?
0: Uh, That is exactly what's happened. (laughs) (laughs) It's like like you've been here before, yeah. Man, you guys take up a lot of room. I mean, there's only eight geophysics students, and half of our office is dedicated to batteries. No, basically batteries, yeah. (laughs) Batteries and large penguin cases.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I tell you, those... The instruments take up a lot of space. They're very expensive, so we have to have a lot of padding. And then the batteries, a lot of these instruments aren't designed recently uh, just because there's <laughs> there's a low demand for geophysics field gear overall. Uh, so there's not a lot of motivation to update like Updating the iPhone every year. So, a lot of times we're using still pretty old technology that can be pretty power hungry. So, we have these giant batteries that we have to lug around in this wonderful topography that you just mentioned.
0: (laughs) It's so true. Um, They're doing a really unique thing this year, though. They're going out to this uh, Miocene aged volcanic plug and they're sort of trying to look and see if they can image the size of the plug beneath the ground. It's kind of a cool deal. And those plugs are associated with a lot of faulting that's laramide and older aged and so they're going to see with seismic later on if they can sort of image those so they're using magnetics and gravity and then they'll later do seismic at these miocene volcanic plugs that are just sort of to the east of our study area that the geologists are doing so it's it's really cool We're basically you can see them see where they're at during the day and they're using all their stuff on that one area and I think it'll, it'll be a really neat story when it's done
1: yeah, no, that's a great idea this time to have them using all their methods on one area and have a more focused study area instead of trying to find, you know, different locations that show the strengths of each method. This really will give them kind of a feel for uh how difficult field work can be.
0: <laughs> yes, that's for sure. <laughs> Especially as well, today was our first really warm day here too, so they're getting the taste of that as well.
1: Ah uh, yes. It's 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 wonderful <laughs> lugging these giant batteries around when it's hot. <laughs>
0: Doesn't that make him run better? Uh, No. <laughs> Even I knew that. Uh, Yeah, I spent a lot of time down by the stream, so it's been pretty rough for me, as you saw on my Twitter feed there.
1: <laughs> Last week, we asked people to send in some photos of their field area, and listener Mark sent in two incredible pictures, and we've posted these on social media, and we'll see if we can get them in the show notes as well of his year-round field area, he says. So it looks like Mark works at the Bingham Mine, which is a giant copper mine, the Bingham Canyon pit. And let me tell you, these are some really impressive pictures of uh, massive geology. Oh,
0: yes, they are. Um, We actually get a chance at field camp to visit a couple of open pit mines, and you just really don't understand the scale until you're standing in the bottom of those mines next to some of those trucks. I mean, it's enormous.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this is a really complex area. You know, he said in his description about uh, some intrusions into this fold and thrust system. But What was really interesting was he referenced the Jordan slide, and I didn't know what this was, so I went <gasps> searching on the internet.
0: You, you didn't hear about this. This is like geophysics in action. It was a couple years ago, right?
1: Yeah, so this is, oh, yeah, this uh, is... 2013, May 2nd, actually, so not almost two years ago now.
0: Exactly. So you can imagine um, in an open pit mine, one of the big things that they have to worry about is the stability of the the benches that they've already carved out. And um, this was a great example of how geophysics essentially saved lives because they had a bunch of benches on this slope and they, had, they were monitoring the slope for creep.
1: Right. And so I read a little bit of an article on this. And it says that they were actually using interferometric radar. And they noticed that there had been a lot of strain going on. So they issued a press release and they evacuated the mine seven hours before the slide occurred. So that is, like you said, it's geophysics in action. And it's actually a really great use of radar, which we've talked about before, to do things like monitor tides. Well, you can monitor Uh, changes in rock shape, too.
0: Exactly. Um, It was a spectacular slide. It really let go a massive amount of a material along the side of it you know and nobody was hurt or anything so that was really neat Um, I know that this is something that geomorphologists use a lot of LiDAR to talk about slope stability so
1: yeah and it was really impressive to me they said that the average speed of the slide was 70 miles an hour and they think that it reached speeds of at least 100 miles an hour during the course of the slide and you can see it really clearly in these pictures
0: Uh, So this is one of my favorite things is um, I'm teaching this class, Catastrophic Sedimentation, and this is certainly an example of that. (laughs) Oh,
1: absolutely. So if you have some awesome field pictures, no matter what your field area is, do like Mark and send them in, and we will share them and talk about them. It's a lot of fun to see what other people are doing.
0: Yeah, those are really great pictures, so keep them coming. Um, So I know last time uh, you hadn't had a chance to go outside much, John. (laughs) Have you gotten out yet?
1: (laughs) I have I did uh, get to go out and do a couple of things of course all of them were very nerdy and
0: (laughs) I wouldn't expect anything less
1: (laughs) no so one thing I did actually on a way to an event this weekend I passed one of our old stone blast furnaces here in Pennsylvania and I think this is a topic that's going to deserve a show in itself maybe when we get back to our regular schedule or maybe a short just with one of the park rangers but have you heard of these things before?
0: Uh, yeah, you've mentioned them before, but I've never actually seen one.
1: Yeah, so these are just these big stone towers that they would actually do uh, iron smelting in. There's a primitive blast furnace. They'd have water wheels running bellows, and they would dump the ore in the top, dump the fuel in the top, and then pour the iron out at the bottom into these channels in the ground to cast the ingots. And so they're scattered around the countryside here, uh... We saw a couple on the way, and then actually there's a state park here, Greenwood Furnace State Park, that we visited.
0: So are these like 1800s vintage? Is that what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, we're talking 1800s. And right now, all that's left is the the stone structure, and a lot of that's been rebuilt. All the buildings are gone, of course. Uh, Most of it was scrapped as soon as the furnace was shut down. But these things did Mm. absolutely massive amounts of iron and really impressive feats of engineering for their day.
0: Uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I would love to know more about that from someone that's, you know, more intimately related with our history because that's a pretty neat thing just to see on the side of the road.
1: Yeah. And well, so the other thing that I did was I spent some time standing outside confusing my neighbors holding an antenna pointed at the sky.
0: <laughs> now, I've been out with you confusing people with this kind of thing before. So the last time we did this, we were looking for a satellite. Is that what you were doing again?
1: That is, when we did it, we were looking for a satellite that was transmitting pictures of Earth back in real time.
0: Right. And that was super cool.
1: Right. Well, this is a project by the Planetary Society. It's the prototype light sail mission. And okay. they uh, sent it up, is probably a week ago or so now. And I spent Friday and Saturday and a little bit of Monday uh, outside for the, you know these 10, 20 minute periods when it's going overhead, trying to receive some telemetry from it. And unfortunately, I didn't hear anything, so I was beginning to wonder if I was losing my touch, or if I had an equipment fault, or what was going on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember running around, pointing that thing all over the place, trying to find a signal. And once we got it, it was great, but it took a while to acquire, so I can see why you were uh, worried about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and well, it turns out that, unfortunately, as of right now, the light sail spacecraft is a frozen Linux box hurling around the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. Uh, Thanks to a software glitch, the operating system is in a non-deterministic freeze, and they're hoping that it will reboot sometime in the next couple weeks.
0: (laughs) That is unfortunate.
1: (laughs) It is, and software is really hard, I will say that, especially software on something where once it's locked in and launched, you can't press the reset button, you can't have any activity, any interaction with it other than pre-programmed
0: actions. Right, exactly. It seems like that's the time that it always goes bad, too. So that's super unfortunate, but maybe they'll get that taken care of.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so best of luck to them, and there will be another mission in a year uh, that is the full light sail mission. But I know, I'm well, I'm sure our folks uh, over at the Orbital Mechanics podcast are going to talk about this some. They've had, unfortunately, <laughs> lots of space mishaps to talk about several bad launches and things recently.
0: Uh, yes, exactly. That is too bad.
1: Anyway, yes, that's what I've been doing. But what do you guys have planned exciting uh, for the field next week?
0: (laughs) Well, so we go from a place called the Death March to a place called the Mixing Bowl. (laughs) And um, it's sort of the first really hard geology that the students are going to have to do out in the field. As you can tell by the name, stuff's really weird inside this this depression. So they see a lot of strange things and a lot of structural anomalies that they might not be familiar with. So it's always sort of a challenging week. It's the first hard mapping project and starting to get hot. We have a lot of gnats here, so the gnats are starting to get bad. But um, we'll see. We'll see what the weather does for us, and it should be exciting.
1: Yeah, those gnats were really, really <laughs> nasty. Yeah,
0: they're, they're brutal. <laughs> they are brutal. I mean, at least they don't bite, but they fly up your nose and everywhere. So... Um,
1: Yeah, and we won't give anything away about the geology out there, but all I can say is have fun when it comes to the (laughs) mixing
0: bowl. Oh, I'll let you know how much they're suffering next week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think we should probably keep it uh, short and go to Fun Paper Friday, because last week, even though we were aiming for 20 minutes, and I thought we may even be under that, we were still at like 25 or 26 minutes.
0: (laughs) Well, the people listening are because they like us, right? So... And they'll definitely like this fun paper, which I can't believe you found.
1: <laughs> uh, this is a special fun paper, yes. This fun paper is called <laughs> Pressures Produced When Penguins Poo. Calculations on Avian Defecation.
0: So now this is really impressive. So I don't know if if you haven't seen this. I mean, I hate to say YouTube this, but you really need to, because I remember being a little <laughs> kid and going to the zoo, and this penguin bent over and my mom and I were like, what, what's happening? And it pooped. And that stuff shot like 10 feet out behind him. <laughs> and we both just stood there and were like, wow, that was impressive. <laughs>
1: yeah. And this paper goes through an incredibly detailed analysis <laughs>
0: <It does.
1: laughs> of the process of penguins <laughs> pooing.
0: It's quite exceptional. Um,
1: so this, this was <laughs> this is a 2003 Polar Biology, Benno et al. We'll have the link in the show notes. And all we can say is pull it up to follow along with the figures.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, the the figures are, you know, every time we do this, I feel like the figures get better and better, but I don't think we'll ever be able to top figure one (laughs) ever.
1: Yeah, it's quite possible. (laughs) So in an effort to calculate the pressures involved in this squirting, they want to know, well, first they have to know how far it travels before it hits the ground and then you need to know some material properties so of course density viscosity that kind of thing and then you need to know the uh how high the penguin is above the ground and also the shape of the stream that is being projected Uh, (laughs) so this is a little bit difficult of a paper to Discuss politely, but their conclusion basically said that between 10 and 60 kilopascals of pressure was required to make the poo go this far. And for those of us that aren't used to kilopascals for pressure, that works out to somewhere between one and a half and 8.7 pounds per square inch.
0: That doesn't surprise me at all. After seeing this in action, it really doesn't. I mean, it takes... That stuff flies. Literally. <laughs> yeah.
1: And this is, I mean, it's a really nice, first they do a very approximate solution saying that it's an ideal fluid, which means it's non-viscous. And then they go into a second set of approximations where they actually do the full viscous fluid solution. So this is hagen Poiseuille equations. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really fascinating analysis. I mean, they do Reynolds number (laughs) calculations to see, you know, we're assuming laminar flow. Is that really valid or is there energy going into turbulent mixing?
0: Um, And one of the problems here with trying to, you know, determine all this stuff, and I really like this sentence in the paper, several attempts were to measure fecal viscosities with a high-performance viscous meter.
1: That's a difficult word. Made.
0: It is. It is, sorry. It's been a long day on the death march. But owing to small remnants of crustacean cuticle, fish bones, and scales, the readings were inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could only get them to eat like penguin chow, it would have been easier. But uh, yeah, different pieces of crabs come out at different velocities, obviously, which made measurements difficult.
1: Well, right. And one thing that they said uh, towards the end of the paper that I really didn't think about was, okay, atmospheric pressure is around 100 kPa. So we're looking at penguins that are putting greater than half of atmospheric pressure behind this poo.
0: (laughs) And like I said, it's not surprising if you have seen this in action. It's quite incredible. Right. Well, and the authors
1: uh, in the paper saying how the birds could theoretically increase the distance, because they want to get this as far away from their nest as possible, and they don't leave their nest uh, during breeding,
0: right? Right, so that's the evolutionary reasoning behind this development.
1: Right, and the authors say, well, you know, if you shot it at a 45-degree upwards angle, that would maximize the distance, but unfortunately... The posture they can't of the over penguin that can't do that. But I did not know this. It says eagles and other birds of prey indeed direct their stream upward by 15 to 30 degrees.
0: Unpublished observation. Yeah, that's my favorite part,
1: <laughs> is that's an unpublished observation. So we don't know exactly where that
0: came from. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um. I won't look at Reynolds' numbers the same again. You know, we talk about it when we talk about (laughs) classic rock deposition, but um, thanks for ruining that for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the one thing they said was they did notice that this was in every direction from the nest, and they do not know (laughs) whether, you know, wind, maybe the penguins actually do say, okay, well, I don't want to poo into the wind, because that would make (laughs) sense. Um, They said that... Maybe that should be addressed on another expedition to Antarctica. It's the final (laughs) sentence.
0: This is a great example of one of those papers where you just never know where you're gonna get inspiration.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was awful, Shannon.
0: (laughs) It's been a long day. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh.
1: So that's a fun paper Friday. Definitely worth checking out and brushing up on your fluid dynamics for. (laughs)
0: exactly <laughs>
1: if you have any suggestions for fun paper friday be sure to send them to us and if you're enjoying these summer shorts let us know this is an experimental format and we're curious to see how you guys are liking it if you do like it head on over to itunes or whatever you uh, get our podcast through and leave us a rating we'd really appreciate it because it helps other people find our show that would also enjoy it
0: how could you not enjoy our show when we talk about the fluid dynamics of penguin poop
1: I know it's a great topic but Shannon if they do want to send us any feedback how could they do that
0: they can find us at don'tpanicgeocast.com our email is show at don'tpanicgeocast.com we're on twitter at don'tpanicgeo john is at geo underscore lehman and I am at shannon Doolin.
1: right so until next week remember don't panic
0: it's not an exact science